Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 23. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, Now, I've said this before, but I I am going to say it again. Uh, In the church, when it comes to teaching on money and giving, uh, there's generally two types of preachers. Uh, For some preachers, Uh, that's one of their main topics. And in fact, in many churches, every single Sunday, you'll be given a message on giving and tithing. And it'll usually come just before the offering to encourage you to put money into into the plate. But then there's the second type of preacher, and I've told you this before too, that I I fall into this category. Uh, We generally get a little bit embarrassed to talk about giving because we don't ever want to see us, we, we don't ever want to be seen as being one of those money-grubbing charlatans who, who have the Bible in one hand and with the other hand they're trying to prize the money out of your wallet. And so when it comes to giving a message on giving, uh, we can become somewhat reluctant in our duty as Bible teachers. Anyway, I wasn't going to mention that this time because over the years I've learned I just need to get over that. Um, Because when we preach our way through whole books of the Bible, it's going to come up, and it's going to come up again and again. And if God's bringing it up, then we need to talk about it, because it is important for our own spiritual development. So I've come to the attitude of, Michael, just get over it. So I wasn't going to mention my embarrassment to speak on this, but I did mention it, and here's the reason why. The more I studied the Bible reading for today, the more I realised that Paul falls into this second category. You see, when I give teaching on finances and giving, I'm very aware that what I say can very easily be taken the wrong way or it gets used to deliberately be misconstrued to make me look bad or 
to be used against me. And the more I read today's reading, the more I realized that Paul is trying really hard to guard against this. Right? He doesn't want people to take what he says in the wrong way. And he doesn't want his words to be misconstrued. And so he makes a statement and then he qualifies that statement. And by saying a bit more, making another statement, he does this a few times. So, for example, in verse 10, he's rejoicing because of the gift. And then in verse 11, he says, oh, but, but I wasn't really in need. Uh, you know, I, I've learned how to be content. But then you can sort of see that he's starting to think, oh, that thinking might think that I'm not grateful for it. So then in verse, in verse 14, he says, but it was kind of you, and, and you're really good like that. Um, but then he might be thinking, oh, now they're thinking that I, I wanted it too much. And he says, but, but, but my heart wasn't set on the gift, but it was good of you. And then in verse 18, but, but you've looked after me really well. Right? And to me, it mightn't be obvious to you, but to me as a preacher, it just seems really obvious that he's just qualifying what he's saying here, which, to be quite frank, is a very un-Paul-like way of writing. Righto. So I've given today's message the title, The Blessing of Generous Sacrificial Giving. It's a blessing for the one who receives, of course. But it's also a blessing for the one who gives. And in fact, Paul is demonstrating here that from his perspective, the blessing is more for the giver than what it is for the receiver. Which shouldn't really be a surprise to us because didn't Jesus himself say, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so Paul starts out in verse 10. He rejoiced in the Lord. Now, did you notice that he didn't actually thank the Philippians for the gift? He rejoiced in the Lord. Did you notice that? You see, Christian giving is very different to the world's version of philanthropy. Right? You know what the word philanthropy means? It's those who just give to other people for the supposed love of other men. Right? So there's some, there are some very big, very well-known humanist philanthropists, uh, billionaires, in fact, who have given billions of dollars away to various charities. And we know about this because their names are almost always attached to the donation that they make. And as such, they receive thanks. They receive accolades. They receive recognition. Their name gets attached to things and that, that will go on into posterity. And, of course, they receive tax deductions. But when Christians give to support ministry, we give out of our love for God. We give as a personal sacrifice to God. We give to advance the gospel. And this is really important, this bit. We share in ministry by giving. And we don't do it for thanks. We don't do it for accolades. We don't do it for the recognition. I became aware of this when I was very young. Um, I would have only been 10 or 12, I think, at the time. And I went along to a, with a family to church, and then after church we had the congregational meeting. It was probably, probably the AGM or something. And at that meeting, it was noted that, that a family, I'm, I'm going to call them nominal church members, right? So they were church members, 
but they never came to church. And they were church members, but you'd never see them at a Bible study or you'd never see them at a um, prayer meeting or anything. Um, now, some of you know the sort of folk I'm talking about. They held a bull sale and the church catering committee catered for it as a bit of a fundraiser. Anyway, they also gave a donation to the church for their trouble. And in that meeting, it was decided that we should write a letter of thanks to these people for their generous donation. And even as a little kid, I found myself wondering, is that right? Should we be doing that? It was good of them to give it, but are we supposed to be thanking? Because I also realised even then as a little kid that there were many people in that congregation who gave far more than that every month and probably every week, some of them, um, and, and they would never get a letter of thanks. And to me, it all just seemed a little bit off. When we give, do we give expecting thanks? Of course not. And today, I'm aware that I'm speaking to people who generously support the ministry of, of Bush Disciples here. And some of you are local and some of you are listening to this. Some of you are watching on video. Um, and like Paul, I rejoice. And I personally want to thank you as well, because without the combined support of you all, we couldn't be doing what we're doing. But more than giving you thanks to you personally, I rejoice in the Lord. Because I realise that we're not in this alone. You are partnering with us in this ministry. Uh, but now I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. We're going to be up to that bit shortly. So Paul rejoiced greatly that they'd revived their concern for him. Let me fill in some gaps here. In the past... The Philippian church had been a tremendous support for Paul. Uh, when Paul went on his missionary journeys from country to country, from district to district, from town to town, uh, he didn't want to be taking money from those that he was preaching to. He, he didn't want anybody there to think that he is in it for the money or that he was some kind of shonky traveling philosopher or cult leader who, who wanted to relieve them of their cash. And that was pretty common in the day, as it actually is still now today. He wanted to be able to preach the gospel free of charge. And he wanted nothing to get in the way of that. But when he planted a church in a town, that church then had the opportunity to bless another town by helping to fund Paul to go and preach in another area. And that way, they could be partners with Paul in his ministry. But you know what? Most of them didn't. Isn't that sad? He'd come into their town and preach the gospel free of charge. And then they had the opportunity to support him as a missionary as he went to the next town to preach the gospel there. And most of those churches didn't support him in that. The opportunity was there. But the only church that supported him was a church in Philippi. There was something special about that church in Philippi. They had a generous, missional heart. And it's interesting to me that 
this is a rather rare sort of letter for Paul to write. Um, usually when Paul wrote a letter to, the church, to one of the churches, it was because those churches were having some significant troubles or had some bad teaching happening or something like that, and he'd have to write to those churches to correct them. This isn't the case with his letter to the church in Philippi. These guys were going pretty well with God. And this is something that I'm learning from this. When a church, or indeed when an individual Christian is going good in their relationship with God, they will be generous to other Christians and they'll be generous um, to, to support missionaries as they take the gospel out. Anyway, it seems that even though they'd helped Paul in the past, they hadn't been able to support him for a little while, um, probably because they couldn't get the money to Paul. He was in jail, probably in Rome, which was a fair way away. And it seems like it was only when they sent Epaphroditus to Paul that he was able to take the monetary gift that they'd gotten together to help Paul survive in prison. You see, their prisons, they weren't anything like the prisons that we have here in Australia. Um, in those pr prisons, he would have had to provide for himself a fair bit of his own tucker. Even the papyrus that he's writing this letter on that wasn't cheap. It's not like today you can just go and buy a whole ream of paper for $5. This is something that would have needed to be purchased, and he needed money to do this. I was thinking about this. Isn't this lovely? In all probability, I mean, it doesn't tell us this, but in all probability, we only have this letter to the Philippian church because that church gave Paul a gift of money, which he would have then been able to use to buy the paper and the ink to write it with. Right, so they used to support Paul, but he hasn't received anything for a while. But now he says, I'm really, I'm rejoicing. You, you've revived your concern for me now that you have the opportunity. You know, sometimes we talk about opportunities to give, don't we? There's, it's um, people always wanting to give us an opportunity to give. But sometimes we might know of something that we, we feel the Lord is is putting it on our hearts that we really should be supporting this ministry or giving to this person who is in great need. But, oh, I'm actually not sure that I have the opportunity. How do I go about this? You realise here that these guys made the opportunity. They sent one of their own members, probably all the way to Rome, that's where we think Paul was, we're not sure, to make it possible for them to give a financial gift to Paul. Wow, what a lesson we can learn from that. We might think of a need and, and think, oh, that is so far away. That need is so abstract from us. I, I don't know how we could possibly help. We just don't even have the opportunity. You know what? We could be like that church in Philippi and make the opportunity even if we have to send one of our own members halfway across the globe to, to deliver a gift to a person or to a ministry, to make sure that it's getting to where it's needed and to make sure that the ministry itself is legitimate and it's going to get used properly. You know, if, if we feel that we don't have the opportunity to give, let's make the opportunity to give. But even though Paul was definitely in need... 
He says, I'm not really saying that I was in need. You see, Paul had learned that in whatever situation he was in, to be content. And then he says something really interesting in, in verse 12. He said, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Hey, there's a verse we know. Verse 13, it'd have to be one of the most loved, one of the most learned, one of the most quoted Bible verses. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And yet, it's also one of the most misunderstood and misquoted Bible verses. Now, I'd be surprised if there wasn't at least one person listening to this today who has this Bible verse up on their wall somewhere or, or stuck with a fridge magnet on the fridge or something. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Or you might have the King James Version that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? That, that only reason they have the word Christ in there is, and, and other versions don't, is some of the best um, Greek translations, uh, original manuscripts, don't have the word Christ. But we know that it's referring to Christ, so it doesn't matter. But often, when we quote this, it's in the context of when a particular challenge arises. And we just, we know, oh, this is a challenge that, I don't know if I can deal with this challenge, but hang on, I can do this through Christ who strengthens me. And many of us have found comfort and strength and encouragement in these words. I have. I've felt and comfort and encouragement and strength in these words. But have we ever realised what Paul is talking about here? He's learned the secret. In the original Greek, there's one single word here for I have learned the secret of. Um, and that word, I'm not going to try and say it. You know, I, I, I can say a lot of them. That, that one I had a lot of trouble pronouncing. It's not only you, Alex, that has trouble with some of those things. I do too. Um, but that word, which I think it only appears here once in the whole of the Bible. I think it's the only place we find it. And that word is about a secret initiation. Right? So in the ancient Greek language it would be used to describe an initiation into some kind of secret mystery cult or something, right? So, I have learned the secret of, right? So, you, you're going to join this, this group of people and you're not going to know the secret until you join and they do the initiation and then they'll, then they'll let you know the secret. So, Paul's being initiated into some kind of secret in Christ. What is it? What's the initiation? What's he discovered? that whether he has plenty or whether he is hungry, whether he has an abundance or whether he is in dire need, contentment. He's content. And when he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, the all things of verse 13 
are the same root word. So if you're reading it in the Greek, you can see that these le- that, that he's actually referring to these other words, right? So it's the same root word as any and every circumstance that you find in verse 12, which are then connected to the facing plenty and hunger, facing abundance and need. And so in the context of where Paul says this, this isn't open slaver, right? He's not saying I can achieve whatever I can set my mind to because Christ is going to give me strength to do it. No, he's not saying that at all. And as such, this is not an exercise in positive thinking. Verse 13 is specifically talking about being strengthened by Christ to deal with having plenty or to deal with having little. And he is definitely not saying that that when he finds himself in poverty, that Christ will strengthen him to accumulate plenty. Now, the NIV, like the Bibles translate this verse 12 differently to each other. The NIV translates it as, I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty, right? So it's talking about it in terms of experience. Okay, so I've experienced having plenty. I've experienced being in need, which is true. But a better translation says so much more than that. It's not only that he's experienced it. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. He hasn't only experienced it. He knows how to live it appropriately. He knows how to live as a disciple of Jesus in a God-honouring way in the midst of richness and in the midst of poverty. You know, the message in many churches today is that poverty is a curse and that God wants to set you free from that curse. Um, Do you know what Paul would say to that? He would say, that's the view of the uninitiated. And if that's my view, that means that I haven't caught on yet to the things of God. And my mind is still blinded by worldliness and the quest for, for, for the temporary earthly pleasures that this world has to offer. Because the initiated, they're not looking to correct that. The initiated know the secret of how to live with godly contentment in poverty and in wealth. Now, in other churches, you might find that the message is exactly the opposite. And some churches will tell you, your wealth is a curse and you need to get rid of it. Guess what? You can give it to us. We'll help you do that. Um, but that's the message that, that some churches will give you. And once again, I reckon Paul would say to a church like that, that's the perspective of the uninitiated. The initiated have learned the secret. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. Um, a number of years ago, somebody gave me a series of messages to listen to. I think it was a bunch of MP3s that were burned onto a CD for me. Uh, And it was entitled, How to Be Rich. And I looked at the title and I went, oh man, 
lot of people give me this stuff to listen to. And I don't even know who the preacher was. But I'm telling you now, it was truly excellent. I'm serious. It is one of the best bits of teaching on, on, on giving and, and, and wealth and prosperity and, that I've ever heard. It wasn't about how to get rich. It was about how to be rich. Let's face it. Most of us, by world standards, are rich. And so most of us who are listening to this today are rich by world standards. But we don't know how to be rich. You see, with wealth comes responsibility. We have a responsibility to feed the poor. We have a responsibility to, to fund the spread of the gospel. We have a responsibility to give generously. We have a responsibility to, to use what we have for the kingdom of God. And this is what Paul's talking about here. Knowing how to be rich and knowing how to be poor. It's about being able to depend on God and depend on the strength of Jesus in our poverty. And being able to depend on the strength of Jesus in our wealth. It's about knowing how to live a God-honouring life when we have nothing. And it's about knowing how to live a God-honouring life when the world is at our feet and our wallets are packed. It's about serving Jesus, whether we're rich or whether we're poor. It's not just about experience. It's about living a godly life in whatever circumstance we're in. And the initiated know the secret. Christ gives us strength to be content. Christ gives us the strength to, to live as faithful disciples of Jesus, no matter what our financial circumstances are. And you might be listening to this today, and this might be a bit of a challenge for you. Do you find your worth in what you have? Do you find your worth in your success or in your earning capacity? Or do you find your worth in your business? Or do you find your worth in accumulating enough farms to pass them on to your kids? Or do you find your worth in getting your own enterprise up to a sustainable concern? And if that's what you find your your worth in, such that if that was taken away from you, if that all just crumbled away before your eyes, that you would be heartbroken and bereft that, that your ambitions have not been fulfilled, Paul would probably say, you're the uninitiated. See, this is about contentment, being, purpose, in all circumstances, whether we have a little bit or whether we have much, have you learned the secret? See, that's the secret. Contentment, being, purpose. In all circumstances, whether we have little or much, that's the secret. Have you learned the secret? Are you living the secret?
And of course, th this doesn't come down to our own strength. It doesn't come down to our own coping mechanisms. It all comes down to faith in Christ. This strength we have in Christ Jesus. Anyway, I better move on. So it seems that the Philippian church had also learned the secret well of how to be in the financial situation that they were in. They had learned the secret of generosity. Out of all of the churches, as I said before, they were the only ones who had a vision bigger than themselves. And they supported Paul in his missionary trips and, and they were supporting him in prison. All right, so even though in the strength of Christ, Paul could be content with having nothing, he was still able to say, but it was very kind of you to share in my trouble. And this wasn't new for them. They'd supported him in the past. And, and this is where we get to the crux of Paul's message. Paul himself didn't have his heart set on the gift. His concern was for the giver and for the fact that they were giving more than that he would get the gift. You see, a generous giving heart is evidence of a heart that surrendered to God. Right back in the beginning of this letter in chapter 1, he was giving thanks to God for this church in Philippi. And he was thanking God for their partnership and that they were partakers with him of grace. And then he prayed for them and he prayed that his, your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All right? Paul's joy is because of their partnership with him in the gospel. gospel. And this joy was because they were filled with the fruit of righteousness. How were they partners with Paul? Well, I suspect we can probably assume that, that they were praying for him um, and, and his ministry, but, but we're not told that. But there are two very practical ways that they did partner with Paul. Firstly, they sent Epaphroditus to help him in his time of need. And secondly, was the very practical giving of financial support. They were filled with the fruit of righteousness. They, they had this compulsion of the Holy Spirit moving them to express their faith in Jesus in ways that cost them. You know, there's an old saying that for many, many of us, the, the last part of us to be saved is our hip pocket. And for some of us, that's true. But when we give, this is an expression of the fruit of righteousness. So much so, I would say that if I am not a generous giver, 
And if I am not a sacrificial giver, then there's something drastically deficient in my relationship with God. Because Christ has given so much to us, we also will become like Christ as we live with God. And we also will become givers. And so Paul's joy, his greatest joy, wasn't so much that he'd received from them uh, something that was going to relieve his suffering, although it certainly would. His greatest joy was what it revealed to him about those disciples of Jesus in that church in Philippi. When we first started off Bush Disciples, um, finances were really tight. And I've told you this before, I think, that you know, there were times in the early stages we'd get to the point we'd go, hmm, not sure how we're going to pay this bill at the end of the month. Oh, well, guess we'll just redraw on the home loan and make it happen. Um, and I can still remember the, the time that this first happened. We had this bill due, and a couple of days before the bill was due, I went to the mailbox, and there in the letterbox was a handwritten letter which also contained a cheque. And it was from a couple in another country town. And the, in their letter, they thanked us for the teaching that we provided. We didn't even know that these guys were listening to Bush Disciples. Um, but they thanked us and told us how they'd been regularly listening and that they'd been really growing in the Lord. And you know what? That letter, that just gave us so much encouragement. It was just, we rejoiced, didn't we, Robin? We rejoiced. And that was the first time it happened, but it happened over and over and over again. It, it was so humbling. Now, I don't believe that, that this couple are any more financial than Robin and I. But what moved me is they cared. And, and we could see the spiritual fruit that God was developing in them that they wanted to give sacrificially to support the mission of the church. It wasn't only that they valued the teaching that they were receiving. They partnered with us. You see, there's two ways of looking at, at, at things. Some people think in terms of fee-for-service, right? So if I'm benefiting from a particular ministry, then I should support that ministry to keep it going after it's all, it's only fair that I pay my way. That's why some folk think. But a better way for us to think is in terms of partnership. When we see a, a, a ministry or a mission that is touching lives with the gospel, it becomes, you know, I'm not trying to pay you back for what I'm getting out of it. In fact, I might be getting nothing out of it, but I can see that others are. And so I'm giving to partner with you in getting the gospel out there and getting biblical teaching out to a world who need to hear it. And it, it delights me to see the Spirit of God at work in anyone, but especially to see the Spirit of God at work in those to whom we minister. And I know some of you here give very generously to other things that aren't Bush disciples. And you know what? That delights me because I see the Spirit of God at work in you 
giving you a generous, sacrificial heart. And I rejoice, not because of the money. Yes, it is a great help, but I rejoice because you partner with us and because you partner with other mission organisations. And I rejoice because to give is good for you spiritually. Just as when I give, it's good for me spiritually. Paul says in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Now, in the original Greek, apparently the fruit that increases to your credit was a common expression used back then to describe compounding interest, right? So if you put the money in the bank, it earns interest. If you leave that money and the interest in the bank, it earns even more interest. And if you leave that in the bank, it earns even more interest. At least it used to, back in the days when interest rates were a fair bit higher than they are now. Now, here's the spiritual truth. Our personal financial support of the church's mission is an important part of our spiritual development. And so Paul says in verse 18, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And then he describes the gift as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. That's like saying, when we give, it's really pleasing to God. Not that we're trying to buy his approval. Not that we're trying to buy our salvation. Not that we're trying to buy an extra special place in his, in his kingdom. And yet when we give, it's really pleasing to God. I mentioned sacrificial giving earlier. What's sacrificial giving? Well, we know that we're not saved by any sacrifice that we make. We're saved by that one and only sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. But in Romans chapter 12, we're told to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's the sort of worship that God is looking for. Spiritual worship which is a life transformed to the will of God. And, and this is a sacrifice that Paul is recognising in the church in Philippi. They have been so transformed by the Spirit of God and, and they want to give. They want to honour God with what they have. Now, here's the thing with sacrificial giving. It costs us. You know, so often when we decide how much we're going to give, we might go, what can I afford to give? You know, without affecting my lifestyle or effect, without affecting my aims in life or my ambitions, what can I afford to give? But here's the thing with sacrificial giving. A sacrifice costs us. I think it was King David who said, I won't give a sacrifice that costs me nothing. But even though it costs us, God will always make sure that we have enough. 
I guess the thing that I've found is I've learned a long time ago that what I consider enough is very different to what God considers enough. Guess whose perspective is the right one? God's. I'm, I tend to want more than enough. God will always make sure that we have enough. Verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. When, when you and I are obedient to God, he'll always give us what we need. And the key concept here is need and riches. Our need, God's riches. You know, the, the prosperity preachers will claim, you give your money to this church and God will give you back more, right? So if you put $100 in the plate, he'll give you back $1,000. What an obscene, let me say grotesquely obscene, distortion of God's word. I, I cannot state this harshly enough. When sacrificial giving gets turned into some kind of get-rich-quick scheme, that is a grotesque distortion of the word of God. God has not promised us earthly riches. He has promised us what we need. And he has promised us this true wealth that we look forward to with Christ in glory. Righto. Well, we've come to the end of the letter to the Philippians. I'm just going to finish in the same way that Paul finished. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. What a, what a wonderful blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. We thank you that, that you've given it to us to study today. And, and Lord, I was just thinking about the, the, the topic that we ended on today about the way that we partner with those in ministry. Lord, sometimes we feel so inadequate. So I think, who, who am I? I mean, I'm no great Christian. I, I don't know how you want me to serve you. And sometimes it might be something as simple as partnering in ministry by giving. And Lord, I want to thank you um, that it's good for us when we give and that it's spiritual growth in us when we give. But only when we have the right attitude. Lord, help us to never view giving as some formula thing where I give this and I'm going to get blessed or I give this and, and I'm going to get that. God, forgive us for if we've ever thought that. And Lord, instead, we, we ask that you would transform our hearts and that you would give us a generous, sacrificial heart, Lord, that we would be worshipping you in the way that you want us to worship, as a life 
sacrifice to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.